Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show. This is your host, Drew Von Sayo, set to bring you the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. Starting today with the boys on the ice, looking at the top six as a result of the trade deadline acquisition of Ricard Raquel and the Penguins' perfect response yesterday afternoon against the Detroit Red Wings after disappointing contests against the Buffalo Sabres and New York Rangers. So, Ricard Raquel, when he first came to the Penguins, as I mentioned on Friday, started off on the third line. He played there Tuesday night at home against Columbus, and then Wednesday night on the road again in the second half of the back-to-back against Buffalo with Jeff Carter, Kisberry Kapanen. Now Raquel has been moved up to the second line with Evgeny Malkin, where he was ideally going to play once he had gotten adjusted and acclimated to the Penguin system. So now Raquel is up there on Malkin's left wing, and Rust is on his second wing. Of course, Evan Rodriguez taking Brian Rust's place on the top line with Sidney Crosby and Jake Gensel. Now, this second line has been absolutely surging since put together by Mike Sullivan and the Penguins with Raquel on Malkin's left, Brian Rust on his right. Looking at the game against the New York Rangers that took place Friday night, of course, the Penguins only had one goal to really show for themselves, and it was a power play goal from Jeff Carter. But that second line was buzzing for the Penguins, and despite not necessarily creating many opportunities to shoot the puck on goal, they still looked very strong and were going to provide the Penguins with a solid line going forward. Brian Rust having two shots on the night. Evgeny Malkin was not in the lineup because of a non-COVID-related illness, but even Ricard Raquel didn't necessarily have shots, but had two hits and two blocks with just under 18 minutes of time on the ice. So really, it was just yesterday that the Penguins' second line got their first real test of working with each other. And, I mean, the Penguins, especially that second line, just took off with that momentum. Of course, Malkin coming back, certainly helping their cause. But, Raquel and Rust had the tools in place in order to be successful already. It was just a matter of awaiting the return of Malkin to the lineup. If you look at the box score from yesterday, Brian Rust, one goal, two assists. Evgeny Malkin, three goals, one assist. Ricard Raquel, also with one goal, two assists. And I just want to go on the record and say that I did in fact call Ricard Raquel scoring his first goal as a Penguin in either Friday night's contest against the New York Rangers or scoring it yesterday evening against the Detroit Red Wings. I knew it was going to happen for Ricard Raquel. Did I necessarily know that he was going to score goal number 11 of 11 for the Penguins? Absolutely not. But I knew it was almost 100% guaranteed that Ricard Raquel was going to score his first goal as a Penguin 
in either of those two games just because of how quickly he had been adjusting on the third line with Jeff Carter and Kasperi Kapanen, much less once he moved up to the second line with Evgeny Malkin and Brian Rust. So, over the course of yesterday's game, that second line for the Penguins totaling 10 points. Malkin 4, Rust 3, Raquel 3. And that's what the Penguins need from their second line. I mean, I had been talking for several episodes about how poor the second line was and how poor that middle six was for the Penguins, even dating back to the last time we spoke to Mike DeFabo about how much the Penguins' middle six was struggling. And at that time, it was just a matter of trying to figure out how the Penguins could solve the issue internally. This wasn't even looking at external options such as Ricard Raquel, but then Ron Hextall went out, knew what he needed to acquire, went out and got it. And in all honesty, when this line continues to play together, if they continue to put up performances like they did yesterday against the Detroit Red Wings. Now, let me just go on the record here and say, when I talk about performances like they did yesterday, I'm not talking about Malkin having four points almost every game, Raquel and Rust having three points a game, because that's very much unrealistic. Nobody can expect that second line to consistently score 10 points a game, of course being combined goals and assists, every single game the rest of this regular season and into the playoffs. But if you can get two to three points from that line every single night, then it's going to create a very strong second line behind Crosby, Gensel, Erod, and so much so that when Jason Zucker finally returns, it's going to make things difficult for Mike Sullivan to slot him back in with Evgeny Malkin. Now, the only thing that that could do would then give Sidney Crosby Brian Rust back on his right wing, and then you slot Raquel over on the right wing and Zucker on Malkin's left, but if that second line is going strong with Raquel, Malkin, and Rust, you're not going to break them up, and Mike Sullivan is adamant on not breaking up lines that have great chemistry. I mean, look how long it took him to break up the Gensel-Crosby-Rust line, and the only reason why he did that was because he knew that he needed to get the second line going. Personally, I would have broken up that top line much sooner than Mike Sullivan did just to give Evgeny Malkin somebody to play with before Ricard Raquel was brought in, but Sullivan waiting until Raquel was brought in to go forth with making that move. And the second line is working very well for the Penguins. So again, I don't necessarily see Jason Zucker landing right back into that top six if he decides to play again before the regular season. And when I say decides to play, meaning that the team allows him to play, because obviously the Penguins are going to bring Jason Zucker back into the lineup as soon as he is cleared to do so. But it doesn't necessarily guarantee that he'll be a top six. It doesn't necessarily guarantee that if he is in the top six, if he's going to go right back to being his second line left winger as he was before. So, something to keep an eye on there with that top six. Now, as I mentioned, a perfect response yesterday evening against the Detroit Red Wings after poor performances against the Buffalo Sabres and New York Rangers. Now, I will chalk up the Buffalo Sabres game to just being, you know what, it's the second half of a back-to-back against a 
team that the Penguins are superior to, they went in there with the mentality that even though Buffalo was worse than them, that they were still beatable even though the Penguins were on the second game in as many days. However, Buffalo stood their ground and made things difficult for the Penguins, Pittsburgh ultimately losing in a shootout by a score of 4-3 to after the Sabres won the shootout 2-0. But, again, I'll chalk it up to it being the second end of the back-to-back. You know, you're not going to be able to go out there and play your best hockey every single night. The Penguins just having an off night against the Buffalo Sabres. Now, Friday night's performance against the New York Rangers was absolutely atrocious. There are no ands, ifs, or buts about it. That performance Friday night was atrocious. The Penguins, arguably one of their worst performances, if not their absolute worst performance of the season against the Rangers, and in the process, only putting up 21 shots on goal. I mean, that is just, how do I say this? Pathetic. Absolutely pathetic. And the defense was non-existent. Tristan Jari getting pulled, not because he didn't play well, but because he was hung out to dry, and Mike Sullivan wanted to try and create a bit of a spark. Turning to Casey DeSmith, in a matter of minutes, DeSmith getting hurt in the game, so Tristan Jari had to put the mask back on and go back in, DeSmith only being on the ice for 4 minutes and 19 seconds. But, again... Tristan Jari was hung out to dry by his defense. And, I mean, it was just a horrific game. One that the Penguins were quickly looking to forget and respond Sunday night, last night I should say, against Detroit. And they put the Red Wings to bed. I mean, they the Penguins went out there guns blazing, showing no mercy against these Detroit Red Wings. And putting 11 in the back of the net. 11. You heard that right. I'm not making that number up. Nine goals over the final 40 minutes of hockey. And the Penguins chased Nedeljkovic out of the game for Detroit after five goals. And then his backup, Calvin Pickard, came in, allowed four However, Calvin Pickard was hurt in a collision with Brian Rust, and then Nendelkovic checks back into the game, and he gives up two more. So, the Penguins just showing absolutely no sign of mercy in that game yesterday, and after their last two performances, it just unfortunately had to be Detroit that they absolutely beat up on, but it was something that needed to be done. And something that the Penguins had to go out there and do. And grab two points. Currently the Penguins. Three points behind Carolina. The Hurricanes having two games in hand. They stand at 93 points. The Penguins at 90. The Rangers directly behind the Penguins. A game in hand over Pittsburgh. 89 points. And the Penguins tomorrow night. Hosting the New York Rangers. I mean, we thought Friday night's performance was going to be important for the Penguins. This game tomorrow night is of the utmost importance. And I mean, 
absolutely utmost performance needed for the Pittsburgh Penguins. A team that just wiped you offensively, defensively, goaltending just 72 hours ago. And you have to then go out there and play them again. This time on your home ice. The Penguins need to go out there and prove to the Rangers that Friday night's performance was not a coincidence. Prove, or rather, that it was a coincidence. And that's not who the Penguins are. Go out there and show the Rangers that if they want to play the Penguins in a Stanley Cup matchup, whether it be the first round or second, right now looking like it's going to be the first, that they're going to have to do so going through Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and that they're going to have to know how to win on the road to move on in the Stanley Cup playoffs. I mean, this game tomorrow night, I can't express the importance of it enough. First of all, because of Friday night's performance, but also the fact that if the Rangers win, then, or even get a second point over the Penguins, whether it be in regulation or overtime, if the Rangers come away with a win, they surpass the Penguins in the Metropolitan standings, and there will be just 14 games left to play for the Penguins, 15 for the Rangers. And with that little time left, I know it may only seem like a small differential of just one point, but it is going to be very tough for the Penguins over the course of this final four weeks of the regular season because they have one of the most difficult schedules going down the stretch. After tomorrow night against the New York Rangers, their next handful of games, they're on the road in Minnesota, on the road in Colorado, then they turn around a week from tomorrow and play at home against Colorado. Then Thursday, away in New York against the Rangers, followed by a game at home against Washington on Saturday, April 9th, and then a day later playing Nashville April 10th. That doesn't even include the remaining portion of their regular season would be the final eight games. They play the Islanders twice, Boston twice, and then Detroit, Philly, Edmonton, Columbus. That is a rough final stretch for the Penguins. And so tomorrow night is really going to be the start of the true test for them and figuring out, you know, what kind of team is this? Are they truly going to be a team that can be a legitimate Stanley Cup contender? If so, then they're going to have to fight in every single one of these games, and they're not going to be able to get away with performances again like they had Friday night against the New York Rangers. You are listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show when we return, discussing the latest with the Pittsburgh Pirates as one prospect is potentially a dark horse to make the Major League roster, along with the turnaround of a former prospect, and finally, looking at two starting pitchers who are struggling early on here in spring training. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show, looking now at the Pittsburgh Pirates, as I mentioned before the break, talking about a dark horse prospect to make the Major League roster, that being Diego Castillo. Of course, Castillo was brought in by the Pirates last season at the trade deadline, and Castillo, so far in spring training, has been absolutely tearing it up for Pittsburgh, and He hasn't necessarily been much of a power guy like O'Neill Cruz, where he has just blasted baseball after baseball over the fence. But he is doing so just consistent hitting, line drive, base hit after base hit. He does have one home run, three RBIs, but is continuing to hit well and hit consistently. 333 hitter so far this season over the course of 15 at-bats, an OPS of 945 for the third-base prospect out of Venezuela. Now, Diego Castillo, again, I say he has a long-shot, rather a dark-horse candidate to make the roster, because in a way, it is going to be a bit of a long-shot for him to make it. I mean, the Pirates have a handful of other infielders that they're considering, Michael Chavis being one of them, along with Kevin Newman, Cole Tucker, O'Neill Cruz, 
Rodolfo Castro was in the picture, but he was optioned to AAA Indianapolis. So there's still a handful of guys that are competing for those bench spots for the Pirates' regular season. Castillo being one of them. Chavis, don't know necessarily what's going on with him. He's been in a bit of a funk lately in terms of not being able to produce at the plate. Kevin Newman, haven't really seen too much of him in spring training, or at the very least, nothing flashy from the 28-year-old shortstop. But we have seen Cole Tucker work his way back into being in a strong position, and he's the one that I mentioned about having a turnaround. While Kevin Newman is hitting 364 over the course of 11 at-bats so far this spring training, again, he hasn't very been been very flashy. And it's just been a couple of bloop, bloopers dropping in for a base hit, whereas Cole Tucker has shown some more pop in his bat. Tucker also hitting 333, two home runs, three RBIs, and an 11-11 OPS, and Cole Tucker is not only finding a way to put the ball in play, but do so with gap-to-gap power, occasionally blasting one over the wall. I mean, this past weekend, he took Garrett Cole deep out to right field when the Pirates were on the road playing the Yankees. And first of all, Cole Tucker hitting a home run, let's be real here, is a very rare sight to see. Second of all, doing so against a pitcher with the pedigree of Garrett Cole makes it better. And the fact that Garrett Cole was a former Pirate thought he was something special. And don't get me wrong, Garrett Cole is a very strong starting pitcher, but he's certainly hittable. And when you get somebody like Cole Tucker, who, for lack of better words, over much of his career has been swinging a noodle bat, I mean, that to me speaks volumes. And Yes, there can be times where even a strong pitcher like Garrett Cole can leave a fastball over the heart of the plate and it gets cranked into the fans out in the outfield. But, I mean, Cole Tucker got a great pitch in terms of location and command from Garrett Cole. And Cole Tucker just got around on it and took it out of the ballpark. And then, of course, Tucker defensively has been sound everywhere, whether it be shortstop, Second base has played a little bit of second this spring training, or even right field. Now, last year, I remember talking vividly, and even in spring training, what was 2020 before things got shut down, Cole Tucker was a mess in the outfield. I mean, he could not judge a fly ball to save his life. But he has gotten tremendously better. His fielding at shortstop has also gotten significantly better. And that's exactly what you want to see if you're the Pirates. Because he is only 25 years old. And so while he may not necessarily have been this strong bat right out of the gate, he may not necessarily have been as strong of a defender as you would have liked. And don't get me wrong, Cole Tucker has always been a very strong defensive shortstop. But defensively in the outfield... He wasn't the best, especially when he was primarily brought up as a shortstop and had never played the outfield. So not only are you seeing Cole Tucker's bat start to work its way around, but he's also improving himself defensively, which is why now it creates such an interesting competition between guys such as himself and Diego Castillo, because they're both essentially fighting for a spot on the Pirates bench. And 
both of them can certainly get to that point, especially with Major League Baseball starting out the season with 28-man rosters. Even if you say 14 pitchers, 14 position players, that's nine relievers, five starters. You have nine in your lineup, including a DH, and then you turn around and have five on your bench. So you, the Pirates could get away with having a catcher, two infielders, two outfielders on their bench, or even if they want to go with one true infielder, somebody who's a utility guy, Cole Tucker coming to mind, being both an infielder and an outfielder, you have him, you have a legitimate fourth outfielder, and then addressing the rest of your bench as needed, whether it be infield or something of that nature. Even if you want a fifth outfielder, a true outfielder on your roster, you can certainly have that with 28-man rosters. And so, again, I'm very excited for Diego Castillo, Cole Tucker, both of whom, again, have had very strong starts to spring training. Whether or not the Pirates will want to have Castillo on the opening day roster, only time will tell, not only because of his current state of development, but also the service time manipulation coming into play. I don't necessarily see the Pirates worrying about somebody like Diego Castillo because he's not a long-term core piece, and at least right now, Diego Castillo can certainly turn into that. But when I say long-term core piece, I'm talking guys like Key Brian Hayes, Brian Reynolds, and yes, I know those two have graduated their prospect eligibility, but they are still key pieces. So you got those two, O'Neill Cruz, Henry Davis, Nick Gonzalez, Quinn Priester, those big-name prospects. Those are who I'm referencing when I say he's not a core piece. So if the Pirates feel Diego Castillo is ready to start the season at the major leagues, then he should certainly be there. And if it means you bump Cole Tucker or Kevin Newman, rather, out of a roster spot, then you then so be it. Of course, Cole Tucker having that edge over Kevin Newman right now, so it would be Kevin Newman who's the odd man out of not only the starting lineup, but also of a bench spot. So there's a lot of flexibility that the Pirates can go about this, but I'm really enjoying what I'm seeing from Diego Castillo. I'm enjoying what I'm seeing from Cole Tucker, and... I have been very harsh on Cole Tucker over the course of this show since I started it two and a half years ago. Hard to believe it's been that long, but nonetheless, been very harsh on Cole Tucker. And so much so as to saying that he doesn't deserve a roster spot. So much so as saying he shouldn't even be in the Pirates organization anymore. Especially when they were trying to make him an outfielder and that wasn't working out. But, as I've said before, I'm a big believer in... Second chances, Cole Tucker continues to get chances, and now he is finally making the most of them. And he turned it around a little bit at the plate at the end of the 2021 regular season. So if he can continue to hit the ball consistently well and put it in play, find himself on base, he's certainly got the speed. He's improving his defense. He can be a solid piece for the Pirates. And then, of course, Diego Castillo, if he can stick consistently at the Major League level, then he's going to be a big power bat for the Pirates going forward in addition to O'Neill Cruz and if they can continue to bring back Yoshi Tsutsugo then they'll have him as well otherwise it'll be the prospects in the form of Mason Martin or even Andy Rodriguez who has certainly been able to show a little bit of pop in his bat although he has been 
reassigned to minor league camp as a result of the Pirates needing to continue to make roster cuts in spring training. Now, looking at the pitching side, two pitchers who have struggled, and when I say struggled, I mean absolutely struggled early on, Jose Quintana, JT Brubaker, starting with Jose Quintana, and he was brought in as a reclamation project, meaning that the Pirates were going to have to work with him a bit. It wasn't going to be all flowers and roses from the beginning. But, I mean, Jose Quintana has been, like, throwing gas on a fire. Bad for the Pirates. Two starts so far this season in spring training. Five innings pitched. Just three punch-outs over the course of 15 recorded outs. So he's only striking out 20% of the guys that he retires. That doesn't even include the number that have reached base against him, would drop his strikeout percentage even lower, but an ERA of 16.2. And when I say that Quintana was going to be a reclamation project, again, I knew that it was going to take a lot for the Pirates to get him back to his form from seasons past, but you never thought it was going to be this bad. I mean, he's given up four home runs already in spring training. Walk two, mention the three strikeouts. Guys are hitting 440 off of Quintana. I mean, that can't happen. And then you look at JT Brubaker, a guy who, personally, I didn't even consider a lock to be in the rotation this season based upon how spring training went for him. Over the course of two games played for Brubaker, four and a third innings pitched, has double Quintana strikeouts with six, and a about half of Quintana's ERA currently sitting at 8.31. But Brubaker, again, continuing to struggle. He's not getting the results that he once saw. And over the course of those four and a third innings pitched, Brubaker has given up two home runs. Last season, we saw the long ball haunt JT Brubaker all season long, especially down the stretch in the back half of the regular season. And it's continuing to haunt him now in spring training. Those two, to be completely honest, have got to get their crap together. I mean, those two are going to be turned to as major pieces of this Pirates 2022 rotation. And when we talked to Joe Black, Joe Block on Friday, he mentioned, you know, guys have to pitch well or they're going to be replaced by guys who are going to get opportunities to pitch well. And Jose Quintana, JT Brubaker, falling right into that category. They either have to pitch well or they're going to get replaced by guys in the minor league system who are going to be working their way up and trying to establish a name for themselves. Two names coming to mind immediately, Rowanzi Contreras, Miguel Yahure. Of course, Rowanzi Contreras has already been optioned down to AAA Indianapolis, much to the frustration of some fans, but Contreras doesn't have very much time at AAA Indianapolis as a result of getting called up to Pittsburgh last season to make his debut. He dealt with some injuries in AAA Indianapolis once he got there, so the Pirates sending him to Indianapolis just to get a little bit more experience 
I'm not necessarily mad or upset by that decision. But Miguel Yahure haven't really seen much of him in spring training. He is been he has been, I should say, working through some injury issues over the course of the offseason. Not entirely sure of what's going on with him. But Miguel Yahure is certainly an option for the Pirates as well over the course of the long term if Quintana and Brubaker cannot sort themselves out and get the job done. Mitch Keller has been very strong in talking to Joe Block. We talked about Mitch Keller Friday, and ultimately he falls into that same category. Got to pitch well or he's going to get replaced. And so far in spring training, Mitch Keller has pitched well, whether or not it translates over into the regular season, time will tell. I mean, Mitch Keller has made two starts, four and two-thirds innings pitched this spring, three punch-outs, has yet to concede an earned run. And in talking to Joe Block, and he mentioned this in a few broadcasts, that Mitch Keller, working with Joel Hanrahan in AAA Indianapolis last season, really helped him become a better pitcher. You're seeing Mitch Keller get more ground balls as opposed to getting a lot of fly balls. And the ground balls, much more likely to be recorded as an out rather than a fly ball. Not to say that you want Mitch Keller to turn into a ground ball pitcher, somebody like what they were trying to make Garrett Cole or what they had Charlie Morton doing, but if you can get him to record outs via the ground ball, I would much rather him only have three to four punch outs a game rather than having that number tick up between six to eight, but then also getting shelled as he did early in his career. You are listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show, and when we return, today's final segment looking at the Pittsburgh Steelers, their updated draft plan not only at quarterback and other positions, but the return of Mock Draft Monday right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show.
And we're back here on the Three Rivers Talk Show for today's final segment, looking at the Pittsburgh Steelers. As I mentioned before the break, looking at the updated draft plan for the Steelers, both at the quarterback position and other positions. Now, looking at some general areas in terms of other positions, there's a lot of speculation that the Steelers may go ahead and draft a running back this upcoming draft as a result of needing somebody behind Najee Harris, not necessarily having confidence in Benny Snell to do so, and as a result of Benny Snell's poor performances over the past few seasons, I can't necessarily blame them for wanting to take that approach. However, I don't see the Steelers drafting a running back early because they have other needs to take care of. I mentioned on Friday the Steelers needing to draft at least one, if not two, wide receivers, working on the offensive line as well, quarterback position certainly not out of the picture, and I'll touch on that here in a few minutes, but there are so many areas that the Steelers can add in this draft, and so if they do go ahead and bring in a running back, at the very least, it would be a day two pick, maybe later, or even a day three pick early on, somebody in the fourth round. But again, I don't necessarily know if the Steelers will address the running back issue in the draft or not, or if they'll try to work to sign a free agent or see what's out there in the trade market, whether or not they can get somebody cheap that they think could be a bounce-back potential candidate. However, I mentioned on Friday as well, the wide receiver position being important because the three the Steelers currently have Deontay Johnson, Chase Claypool, Gunnar Olcheski, none of them are going to be able to play every single snap of every single game this upcoming season. You need more than three wide receivers, minimum of four, if not five, which is why I say the Steelers are going to draft at least one, if not two. And of course, the Steelers having a strong track record in terms of being able to draft successful wide receivers. Now, at the quarterback position, Mike Tomlin and Kevin Colbert speaking to the media yesterday saying that they liked the Trubisky acquisition in free agency as a result of Trubisky not being able to or being able to be picked up without having to give up draft capital. And to me that was important. However, both of them went on to say that just because they signed Trubisky doesn't take them out of the picture for drafting a quarterback. And, of course, we all knew this was what was going to happen. Trubisky was brought in to be the bridge, or at the very least compete, to be the bridge quarterback with Mason Rudolph and Dwayne Haskins, and the Steelers were also going to draft somebody this upcoming draft. And, as you've seen reports, the Steelers and Mike Tomlin very high on Malik Willis. So much so that ESPN's Todd McShay was even talking about a conversation he had with head coach from Liberty, Hugh Freeze, about Malik Willis, saying that Detroit has interest in Willis, Carolina is there also with interest, and Mike Tomlin absolutely loves Malik Willis. But Mike Tomlin talked to Hugh Freeze, head coach at Liberty, and said that they love Malik Willis, but they don't know if they'll be able to get him at pick 20. I don't see the Steelers trading up 
for Malik Willis. Again, that can change. If Mike Tomlin has a gut feeling that Willis is going to go early and Tomlin wants to trade up, then the Steelers will trade up to get Malik Willis. But as of now, I don't necessarily know that that's going to be the case. And Mike Tomlin's certainly not going to spill any beans about the thought of a trade up. And as a result, mentioning that they don't know if they can get Willis at 20. Of course, Kenny Pickett, Matt Corral, options as well. Pickett having his stock fall slightly. Not necessarily a guarantee to go in the top 10 anymore. PFF reporting that Pittsburgh is the most likely destination at this point for Kenny Pickett, which would certainly excite the fan base. But at this point, Kenny Pickett is 23 years old. He's not going to be somebody who sits for a year or two as a guy to learn the playbook. I mean, he might not start the opening game of the season because he doesn't know the playbook, but you would like to get him in there at some point that first season because he's only 23. Or, I say, I say only 23, but for a rookie in a draft, that's older. And so you want to get him involved right away. Whether or not that works out for the Steelers, only time will tell. But, as I mentioned, it is the return of Mock Draft Monday. Of course, I started this last season as we got close to the NFL Draft, working with the PFF software all seven rounds, just trying to get you guys an idea of, according to this simulation, where players are going to go. I'm picking on behalf of the Steelers based upon needs that I see them needing to address in correlation with what reports are being mentioned on social media and also what I believe as a fan. So, starting off here, round one, pick 20, I went the wide receiver route because I know the Steelers have a strong track record of being able to draft a successful wide receiver early on in drafts and having them turn out great. And with the 20th pick, I went with Chris Olave, the wide receiver out of the Ohio State University. Olave, certainly a first-round pick. It's only a matter of time when you hear his name get called in the first round. But Olave is a guy who has primarily lined up in the slot for Ohio State, standing in at just six feet, which for a wide receiver, a little bit on the smaller side, but hey, Antonio Brown was 5'11", and he was a deep threat guy, so that doesn't necessarily rule anything out. Olave running a 4.39 40-yard dash, somebody who has a lot of speed, and the Steelers, they need to replace what Juju Smith-Schuster brought in the slot, and Chris Olave is somebody who can certainly do that. He worked with talented quarterbacks at Ohio State, formerly Justin Fields, this past season, C.J. Strood, and so there's a lot of potential in Chris Olave. And I would love to have him as a Pittsburgh Steeler. I think he represents everything that the Steelers organization wants to have in any of its players, but especially at the wide receiver position when they've caught a lot of backlash as of late as a result of 
Juju Smith-Schuster and Chase Claypool being obsessed with TikToks. So then, after drafting Chris Olave, just 15 picks later, I made a trade. And of course, this was as a result of quarterbacks starting to come off of the board. Of course, in this draft, Malik Willis, the first one off the board, going to New Orleans at 18th overall. After Willis, Kenny Pickett went off the board. And so at this point, I knew that I needed to make a move to trade up and get a quarterback. So I traded up in the second round with the New York Jets, acquiring the 35th overall pick in the draft, giving New York the Steelers' current second-round pick at 52, and also a 2023 third-round pick, PFF showing that the Jets had a 73% chance of accepting that trade offer based upon their model. In my simulation, the Jets went ahead and accepted that deal, and with the 35th pick, I turned around and got the Steelers' franchise quarterback of the future, Desmond Ritter, out of Cincinnati. Now, this goes hand-in-hand with what the reports are showing, that the Steelers are going to bring in a quarterback despite signing Mitch Trubisky. I am very much high on Desmond Ritter. Personally, I would take him ahead of Malik Willis. Malik Willis is not as much of a ready-now guy as he is someone who's going to have to sit and wait for a season or two to develop. Ritter, I think, would be somebody that has much more immediate success, and Cincinnati is a much higher level of Division I football than Liberty. Cincinnati in the AAC are very much capable of being a strong football program as they are. And I think it's important to note that Cincinnati was a college football playoff top four team. Yes, they lost to Alabama, but most teams are going to lose to Alabama. And Desmond Ritter did all he could in that game to keep his side in it, but even a school like Cincinnati isn't going to be able to compete with somebody such as Alabama. And again, as I've said before, Desmond Ritter, I am very high on. I like all of his attributes. He's able to throw on the run. He's got a cannon of an arm, and it's somebody that the Steelers are going to be able to build with as their future franchise quarterback. So then, as a result of giving up the 52nd overall pick, the next pick wasn't until the third round pick 84, in which I drafted Kellen Deesh, a tackle out of Arizona State. Now, I understand the Steelers bolstered their offensive line in free agency, but that doesn't mean that you still can't turn around and draft somebody, as the Steelers have previously mentioned, saying that about the quarterback position, but it applies everywhere. And Deesh is somebody who I am very high on at the offensive line position, someone that has shown to be a very strong run blocker and also a very strong pass blocker. And if the Steelers can grab Kellen Deesh in the third round, that's great value at that pick. And Deesh certainly having the capability of being a future starter for the Steelers, again, maybe not this season, because of the acquisitions that they went out and brought in through free agency. 
but certainly somebody who they could turn to in the future based upon his development and how he performs in training camp and preseason this year. Maybe even getting the first call-up if something happens to one of the veterans that they went out and acquired. Or even somebody like Chooks Okorafor who was re-signed. If Chooks struggles, then they could turn to somebody like Kellen Deesh. Fourth round pick 138 brought in Neil Farrell Jr., defensive lineman out of LSU. Now, at this point, it is being hinted at that Stephon Tuitt is edging closer to returning to the Steelers. However, Stephon Tuitt, much like much of the Steelers' defensive line, is starting to get older. So now is the time where you got to start to plan ahead and bring in somebody that you could potentially replace to it the youngest of the bunch on the defensive line being just 28 years old but you've got Alualu who's mid 30s Cam Hayward mid 30s so even if he's not a replacement for to it he could certainly be behind Tyson Alualu or even Cam Hayward and Neil Farrell Jr. at LSU has shown great speed but also an ability to be flexible, serving as a nose tackle, but also as a defensive end as well, based upon the given needs of the Tigers at that time. And certainly coming out of a great program in LSU, formerly coached by Coach O. And so I would love to see Neil Farrell Jr. be brought in by the Steelers. And then... The Steelers not having a fifth round pick, so in round six, pick 208, having them bring in Josh Rivas, a guard out of Kansas State. Rivas, just like Deesh, very strong as a run blocker, very strong as a pass blocker, and certainly capable of providing some value for the Steelers in terms of having depth at the offensive line position this season, and Rivas may be a little bit more of a developmental piece, somebody who may not start for a few seasons, but he certainly gets great value for the Steelers in the sixth round at that slot. Then moving to the seventh round, just 17 picks later, the Steelers going with a corner, Dakobe Durant out of South Carolina State. Again, Dakobe Durant mainly lining up as an outside corner, occasionally playing in the slot, but the Steelers are going to be needing to target outside guys. And Again, just like Rivas, Dakobe Durant, very strong value in the seventh round out of South Carolina State. Certainly has played well for South Carolina State in the ACC and is somebody, again, that I would love to see be a Pittsburgh Steeler. And he, just like Rivas, may not start right away, but can certainly develop into somebody who has potential and can sit behind Akello Witherspoon, who the Steelers have re-signed, and can learn a thing or two from Witherspoon, and continue to grow and develop as a player. And then the last pick, round 7, pick 241. This one, I mean, it's written in stone at this point that the Steelers are going to go out with their last pick, if he's on the board, bring in tight end Connor Hayward out of Michigan State. Connor Hayward may not necessarily make the... 53-man roster, but the Steelers are going to do their due diligence 
as the younger brother of Cam Hayward, they are going to go out and bring in Connor as somebody to be a camp body, at the very least would be a preseason option, and at this point more than likely would be somebody who sits on the Steelers practice squad at the start of the season, waiting for somebody to potentially need replaced on the active roster before hearing his number called and getting to play in an NFL game. You've been listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show. I thank you all for tuning in on this unusually cold and windy Monday afternoon here in Bethany, West Virginia on March 28th. Be sure to tune in on Friday for more insight about the Steelers, about the Penguins, and about the Pirates when it is a little bit warmer. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show. Have a great day, everybody.